Federal Drive is presented by GEHA, Government Employees Health Association, proudly providing health and dental benefits to federal employees and their families. Visit GEHA.com. The Department of Veterans Affairs is setting a new standard for cybersecurity across its networks. VA is shifting some of its systems to a continuous authority to operate. It's a trend that's already happening across the Defense Department. The idea is VA will keep checking in to make sure those systems uphold cybersecurity requirements rather than just checking off that those standards are met once before their launch. For more details, Federal News Network's Jory Heckman talked with Deputy Chief Information Officer for VA's Product Engineering Service, Carrie Lee. First, though, you'll hear from VA's Chief Information Security Officer, Lynette Sherrill. From a cybersecurity standpoint, what we really want to use this for is to give an automated enterprise risk view. So with the ever-changing threat landscape that we're dealing with in cybersecurity today, one of the things that is very hard to keep up with is how is the risk posture of all of our systems changing? With the, the scale and scope of VA, it's difficult when we have a zero-day vulnerability come out to immediately know what is the impact of that on the 1.6 million assets we have on our network, right? Or the, you know, I think right now we're running about 900 ATO systems. So what this integration and automation is going to allow us to do eventually is that would immediately come into the environment. We'd know immediately these are our six most critical systems impacted by this zero-day vulnerability, and we'd be able to focus our resources on those systems to make sure that we could maintain a risk posture that's acceptable to the organization. And I think that's what it offers people like Carrie, authorizing officials, is that automation and that quick visibility. I know for me as the CISO, that is super important so that I can see that immediately. And Carrie, what about you? You know, from a development perspective, having that automation there that Lynette is talking about also allows us to develop, get our code out faster and have our developers think about security from the beginning versus tacking it on at the end. It also frees up a lot of people from manually entering into our GRC systems, compliance information, which can take a lot of resources to be able to focus on higher valuable tasks such as actually developing systems or maybe some of those people that are entering the information into the GRC tool now once we have automation can focus on security and doing things like being assessors or you know working in CSOC or something like that so it will free up a lot of resources to be able to work on other things and since we are in a resource constrained environment there's not enough security people or IT people to meet the needs right now that this will really help. I want to circle back to that workforce piece in a moment, but I do want to just kind of underscore this whole culture theme, you know, getting those developers on the same page as the security folks and making sure they're reading from the same sheet of music, so to speak. And just in terms of that culture and how that's evolved over at VA OIT, I just wonder if you could speak more to that piece of things. I can speak to really opening up the conversation between the developer teams and the security teams. Like I think Lynette mentioned on stage, it used to be developers tried to bypass security or get around security. But really in this partnership of working on the ongoing authorization, the continuous ATO, it really opened up those communication channels and got the teams talking about how to help each other and really make a difference together instead of oh, we don't want to listen to security, and security is like, oh, we don't like what those developers are doing. So it's changed the dialogue between the teams. 
So culture change is the hardest change, right, in any enterprise or in any any organization. And in VA, it's extremely difficult because we're such a large organization. But culture change is three areas, right? You have knowledge, the attitude, and then the behavior. And it's pretty easy to change people's knowledge. Carrie talked about it with education. You can educate people on why this is a better process. And you can even get their buy-in as to, hey, yeah, it is a better process. But we're they have to invest is their behavior. Their behavior has to change to complete the culture change. And if they're not going to change their behavior, then you're not going to drive the culture change. So you have to get them excited enough about the change that they take their knowledge and they take their buy-in and actually use that to change their own behaviors as well as their peers. So I think that's where it really starts to come together. And because I think key to that is making sure that the leadership team is exhibiting those same values as well, because then that makes the workforce follow along a little easier because they see it's safe to do so. I wanted to follow up on the facial recognition for clinicians and you know, rather than have that PIV card, that credential to move forward that you would have clinicians face to proceed with right, you know, right. all of the work that they need to do, that's probably early stages there. But in terms of the timeline and in terms of next steps, what are you hoping to do and how are you looking to make that possible? So with the administration's executive order 14028, they gave us additional flexibilities with the FIDO2 authenticators. And that's what we're looking to leverage to do this. So it wouldn't be elimination of PIV cards at all, but it's building on top of the issuance of the PIV card as a trusted source identity. And then from that, you can derive a new authenticator or a new credential or a new certificate. And uh, much like we use facial recognition to log in an iPhone today, that's the type of experience we want to give to a clinical staff. And actually, we're pretty close. I mean, we will be running active pilots throughout 24 with clinical staff. That's how close we are. And in hopes that we can begin to roll into production pretty quickly. I mean, we have in VA, we have a really good PIV card utilization. We're more than 95% of people logging into our network every single day use a PIV card. But when you take the denominator that we've got more than 650,000 end users logging into our network every day, we still got about 30,000 that a day that use user ID and password that we have to get after. So there's a couple dynamics that we're going to be using and leveraging the FIDO2 flexibilities that we have. And one of them is going to be how do we make a more frictionless authentication process for our clinical staff? In addition to that, how do we get that, that last 30,000 users making sure they are using multi-factor as well when they log into our network because they have very valid reasons for not. Some of them are reasonable accommodation. Some of it is a sterile environment field. Some of it, there are some very real complicating factors that cause that. But I really, again, it's the technology is finally there where we can utilize the technology to provide a better experience for our end users. That's really exciting to hear. In terms of that executive order, it's Mm -hmm. pretty big. It's 100 plus pages. Uh, And I know that right off of that EO, the VA has announced kind of AI tech sprints, things to improve that experience for the clinicians, whether it's, you know, additional opportunities 
for VA, whether it's, you know, getting on top of this emerging technology and the challenges side of things, what are just kind of next steps that are in your mind for implementation of that EO? So we're doing a lot with that. For those that don't know, just a little, some stats. That executive order has spawned 12 mandates, which are OMB memos that have come out and embedded within each one of those memos. You total it all together. We're running just over a hundred different requirements into the organization. And that's not a bad thing, but you do have to take a risk-based approach to it in understanding your own environment and understanding what is the highest level of risk that we really need to go after this and address. And some of the things like logging, logging, everything is great, but it may not be all that practical for an organization size of VA. So those are where we make risk-based decisions and, and in partnering with our regulators and OMB on, look, these are some risk-based decisions we've got to take here. That was Lynette Sherrill, the VA's Chief Information Security Officer, talking with Federal News Network's Jory Heckman. You also heard from Carrie Lee, Deputy Chief Information Officer for VA's Product Engineering Service. Leadership today, especially within the federal workforce, is being tested more than ever before. As the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency's Chief People Officer, Elizabeth Comstetter sees a focus on people as absolutely crucial to her leadership style. Comstetter joined Shane Canfield, WEPA CEO, to reflect on her years of experience leading in the federal human capital space. Hello, and welcome to the Lessons in Leadership podcast. I'm your host, Shane Canfield, CEO of WEPA. Today I'm joined by Dr. Elizabeth Comstetter, Chief People Officer, at the Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency. Elizabeth, welcome. Thank you, great to be here. In your current position at CISA, one of your responsibilities is ensuring a people-first culture. Explain what that is, and, and what's the role of leadership in creating and shaping that culture? Yes, at CISA, really paramount to our culture is a people-first driven aspect so that we are really looking at how do we accomplish our mission through our people and in order to do that we really value our people we want them to feel empowered and supported and uh, respected and also that their managers care about them so well-being is important psychological safety in the workplace is important so that all voices and ideas are heard So I like to call it our North Star. Having a people-first culture really starts with the people in order to get our incredibly difficult mission accomplished. In terms of leadership, which is a great question, I think we all know that culture is really driven by leadership and the the behaviors that we allow and we uh, uh, reinforce in our leaders. So we really work at making sure that our leaders are bringing out the best in their people every day. So again, that they feel they can bring their voice, especially an opinion that might not go along with the majority of a group, so that we get that diverse perspective, we get those different ideas and experiences. And that's really where we find that it's important that leaders are purposefully bringing out their talent on their teams to enable our mission. Yeah, excellent. We're, we're going through a, a culture project at our work. Oh, great. Yeah, it's, um, it's been six months in the making, and it's going really well, but it is work. Yes. And it requires from the top down. So I'm, I'm also involved in that. I hear you. Great. Throughout your career, you've piloted many different talent management programs, including at NASA, the CIA, the FBI, just to name a few, and you have an amazing career. What have you learned or 
how have you might have changed along the way in creating and leading those programs? Yes, and I, I, I am so honored to have had a career in public service across multiple federal agencies, always in the realm of human resources and workforce performance. And I think because I study organizations and people in them, I've come to realize, particularly in the federal government, that many of our programs are really grounded in the industrial era thinking that this is organizationally structured in a hierarchy with boxes and lines on charts, uh, with the center being around jobs and what do we need to get this job done in terms of skills and training. And what I found is that we're really not in the industrial era anymore where we would promote the smartest people who knew that work and they would then tell the people on their team how to do things and oversee that work. We're now in a digital era and the information era where work gets done collaboratively across geographic boundaries and certainly across org charts. So uh, we like to call it networks um, or hierarchies, And we really need to, again, unleash people so they can find those other people who are working on similar problems or have the right ideas. And so I really like to think of our work now in the talent programs being human-centered. It's more about the user and the experience than about the rules and regulations. So although we have to have rules and regulations, certainly in human resources, is that person experiencing what they need and getting what they need for their role at that time? So not so much on the job, but on the person. So for example, we're recruiting. What's the applicant experiencing? Because if they're not having a good experience with our organization from the time we're recruiting them, they're going to go work for somebody else. Same thing with like first-time supervisors. We know they need certain training, but telling them to sit in a class for one week and then hope a year from now they'll remember what they learned to apply, that's not really human-centered. The human-centered is what do they need when they need it and building modules or, or just-in-time training and bringing that to the people, to that user as they need it. So that's really, I think, the most important focus of talent programs today in this era to enable the workers to be the best they can be in their, in their roles. Excellent. New thinking. Um, this is always an interesting question. Has there been a time when, as a leader, that you've made a mistake? And what is that? And um, I think most important, what did you take away from that? What did you learn from that? Well, I kind of chuckle because I think as leaders, we have to learn to recognize our mistakes, admit our mistakes, and that they are opportunities to learn. And so uh, I've had to do my own self-reflection on, on making mistakes and when things don't turn out the way that I expected them to. Um, makes me think of a time when I was at the Transportation Security Administration and I was a supervisor. And I was really embroiled with my program. I was the technical leader of it. I understood it. I'd run it for years. And I was making a briefing for a decision that had to be made about this program that was very near and dear to me. And I presented the briefing uh, to one of the very senior people in the agency and I think there are about 20 people in the room. And I had gone through the briefing, answered all the questions, and that leader then said, okay, I'm gonna go around the room and get everybody's opinion, and then everybody gets to vote, which kind of set me aback because there were people in that room that didn't have any technical knowledge about my program. She even turned to the executive assistant there, taking notes on the meeting, and said, go ahead, and I wanna hear from you. And I realized, in hindsight, 
I had stopped listening. I had been in transmitting all of my knowledge and what I saw to be the right way, and I was not listening to different perspectives in the room because I didn't think that, I didn't value that they were bringing any kind of input to this particular decision. And it didn't go as I had hoped, and I left very disappointed and was busy blaming the senior leader and how that meeting was conducted, that she let all these people have opinions when they didn't know, in my mind, didn't know what they were talking about. And so um, in reflection on that, I realize, and now as I've moved into more senior leadership positions, I realize that was a mistake, that it actually is really important to listen, especially to people who have different perspectives or at a different point in the career, not just the people who know the program or the technical really well. And so that was a mistake I made, and I realized in my own sense I wasn't listening to very different opinions, and I probably should have because I would have learned more about what was needed for this program going forward than just leaving, getting, getting upset that it didn't go a certain way. So I've really practiced active listening. I've practiced making sure there's very different people on um, teams and certainly on committees or councils that we need early careers, people new to the agency, mm -hmm. people who haven't walked in the shoes of the technical workforce because they're asking questions we need to hear for these programs to be successful. Excellent. Your career in talent management means your work is very closely tied to people. And even your title, chief people officer, what does that mean to you to be a leader in the federal system with that focus? Isn't that a great title? I just love the title Chief People Officer, and I think it's my dream job, really, to be focused on people and culture and the workforce strategy for the whole agency. And I'm just so excited to be at CISA at this point in time. We're only four years young as an agency, so we're really still creating who we're going to become as an agency and what is our culture and what kind of people and talent do we need to be sure we have to be successful. So it's very exciting for me to be in this role with a intentional focus on culture, because it's one of those things, if you leave it to chance and you kind of hope it goes the way you want it to, it probably won't. So by building programs, including leadership development programs, including um, any kind of training and learning and career growth, and um, engagement programs and listening programs. That's what's really key for, I think, for our agency and particularly me in this role. Um, I think in the federal government, we got used to doing annual survey, the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey that OPM, Office of Personnel Management, runs every year. So we would do a survey and we'd read it and we'd say, oh, this is the opinion of our people. And then we would do action plans and then we'd roll out certain activities that we would hope would, in would increase engagement. In this era, you can't do once a year and understand what your employees' experiences are, what they need, what's working well, and what needs to improve. We need active, uh, ongoing listening programs. So one of the things we're doing at CISA is having more pulse surveys, having more focus groups and what we call sensing sessions, expecting our leaders to have office hours where anybody can come and just talk about what's going well, what do they need, how, how are things going, um, because I, we feel like it is an ongoing need to hear from our people. And I think in this role and over the years of serving, I've also realized there's never a one-size-fits-all. You know, we think certain people need certain things at certain times in their career. There's no one-size-fits-all. 
neither can we also customize everything to every individual. So there's got to be a sweet spot in building really great talent programs, but also, like I said, thinking about can we do this in modules? Can we make it a menu? Can we do it just in time as people need it so they can practice the new skill or knowledge in their role? So I think we have such great opportunity, again, with the technology that enables us to really um, focus on how we connect people with their work and their team to get things done in, in very new ways. This is always an interesting question. Is there a figure either from your personal life, your past, somewhere in history generally that inspired you, your leadership style, um, how you view leadership? There are many figures who have been very inspirational to me, but there is one that sticks out, and that's my mother, Paula Brownlee, who has been a very inspiring leader to me all my life. And I think because first and foremost, she had a strong family and a strong career, and that's something I always wanted. And I saw her first as my mother, but then I also saw her as a leader in her career and in academia, which was her chosen field. But I always knew her family came first. And as I saw how she balanced different family needs with also a, a growing and more and more prominent um, career positions in leadership, that she had to balance that. And I think I learned from her that you can have both. You have to, you have to focus on different things through your career um, and through your life, but that you don't have to trade one for the other. Um, I've been married, happily married for 32 years, and I'm a mother of twins who are almost 24 years old. So, and I've had a great career in public service. So I think that having her as a role model has really helped me um, find my own courage, find my own confidence, and find my own voice in how I can prioritize the things that are most important to me so that I can actually balance both family and career. And you're doing it well. You're, Thank uh, you. Having known you now for seven or eight years yeah. um, and worked alongside you, uh, your passion is infectious. Thank you. Your uh, intelligence and, and the thoughtfulness with which you approach uh, all of these issues, it's, uh, it's an honor for you to be here. And thank you for your time. Thank you very much. I'm Shane Canfield, CEO at WEPA, and until next time, have a great day. Find the full podcast and future episodes of Lessons in Leadership on the Federal News Network app and anywhere you enjoy your podcasts.